It's become tradition for me to throw on music whenever I play a competitive video game. For some reason, I tend to focus better in tense situations when I have something to listen to. This is such a simple concept, and most people mutually understand that this is the case in games. But there isn't much scientific research backing this theory. This is something that is understood amongst video game composers. Music can often be the push your brain needs in order to make split-second decisions, even if the two concepts don't correlate in the slightest. But that can't happen unless the music coexists with game design that sets you up for this kind of thing. And to me, that describes the recent Doom games pretty well. When I play these games, my fight or flight mode is always active. I'm constantly thinking about which weapon to use next, which demon to kill, and where I want to move, all while being actively pursued from every corner. My mind is racing a thousand miles a minute and my mouse is constantly shaking. And yet, I'm able to stay on top of things. Doom 2016 and especially Doom Eternal set you up for intense battles. And they provide you with the tricks of the trade necessary for killing everything in sight despite the overwhelming odds. I can attribute part of that to id Software's tightly designed and intelligent gameplay mechanics across the board. But I can also attribute my abilities in combat to Mick Gordon and his magnificent work on these games' soundtracks. In the first brief he received for Doom 2016, he was told to create something that would fit three key criteria. He needed to create music that no one had ever heard before, it needed to fit the game perfectly, and it needed to be instantly loved by millions of fans. Despite being faced with such a monumental task, he managed to pull through and create something easily identifiable and excellent in its own right. It tears into your psyche and accelerates your methods and choices in combat as a wave of dopamine washes over you with every guitar riff shredded and every bullet fired. Today, we'll be examining just how Mick created the soundtracks for both of these games, the role they play in game design, and their ability to rise above genre tropes and preconceived notions of what a Doom soundtrack, or video game soundtrack, should be. I'm Liam Triforce, and in this video, we'll be diving into the depths of hell in an effort to understand the music of Doom. Of course, in order to evaluate where the music is now, we need to understand how we got here. After working with id on Wolfenstein 3D, Bobby Prince was hired to compose the soundtrack for Doom. At first, he was instructed by John Romero to primarily focus on techno and metal music for the game, but as the levels were coming together, both of them realized that ambient music would be more appropriate. Ultimately, they settled on a blend of the two, creating a unique atmosphere for one of the most influential action games of all time. First, let's discuss those atmospheric tracks. Although horror wasn't Doom's default setting, it was a key part of its design. The game is always encouraging you to push back against an overwhelming force, and that philosophy lends itself well in both of Doom's moods. You might remember grabbing a keycard in the original Doom and then the lights going dark as you were assaulted by demons. The composition used in this level is called Dark Halls, and its drums manage to thread the needle between violence and suspense as they back up a subtle synth melody. Speaking of suspense, there's a track called Just That, and it represents the dangers that lurk in E1M5 as the enemies begin to ramp up and challenge in number. And E1M8 is home to a hopeless melody that foreshadows your upcoming journey through the shores of hell.
Something that's important to note is that these tracks still maintain the pace of the game through their supplementary instrumentation. Whether it be the Imp Song or the Demons from Adrian's Pen, Doom's fast-paced action is never lost in translation. However, there are levels in this game that are long, interconnected mazes that the player has to take their time in solving. And for levels like those, Romero chose to implement the tracks that zeroed in on atmosphere above all else. E2M4 was the perfect fit for the song titled They're Going to Get You, with its complex layout, mysterious atmosphere, and disturbing imagery. The level is the culmination of Doom's attempts at horror in every way. Of course, as much merit as Doom's ambient stuff has, the metal has shaped its identity. The first glimpse you get into Doom's world is through that iconic theme for E1M1 that you've all heard a million times before. And it never gets old. I could look into why the song is so iconic, but I honestly just feel it's a strong riff that symbolizes the descent into hell and the pulse-pounding aggression that Doom provides. It leaves a very strong first impression on the player, and it doesn't end there. E1M4? E3M1? E2M1 You get the idea. The decision to use rock and metal tracks sparingly in levels that deserve them was a great choice, and it paid off in giving the atmosphere of Doom diversity. Yep, the Doom guys really like metal. So much so, in fact, that I can't really attribute what works in this soundtrack to them. I can, however, attribute it to the various artists and bands that they, let's say, paid tribute to. E3M1 copies the lead riff from Mouth of War by Pantera verbatim. Kitchen Ace sounds pretty similar to Rise, also by Pantera. Sign of Evil is pretty similar to King Crimson's rock ballad Starless. Even part of the iconic E1M1 riff we all know and love is identical to the intro riff from DRI's Hooked, aside from one note. I can't play these examples at the risk of copyright issues, obviously, but there are a few side-by-side -side comparisons out there that should give you the gist of what I'm talking about. Honestly, it borrows from so many different bands that it may as well be a video game that you play while you have a vinyl spinning in the background. And most Doom fans didn't care. I mean, they still don't, really. I guess you could view Doom's soundtrack as one big tribute to the genre in MIDI form. None of this stuff would fly nowadays. Hell, a few years forward and Kenji Yamamoto, the Dragon Ball guy, faced allegations of plagiarism so severe that he was fired by Toei. But back then, it was a treat to hear Pantera or Metallica in this game, even if it could be viewed as an unauthorized cover from the outside looking in. That's not to say Bobby Prince didn't inject uniqueness into his work. Because you can only convey so much in a MIDI rendition of a metal song, Prince opted to bring melody to the forefront in most of these tracks. A riff that was originally performed as a gnarly grunge piece becomes a central component in establishing melody. This becomes easy to notice when you compare E1M4's riff to the low thrash vibe of Pantera's song. E1M1's riff also varies far more than Hooked, and emulates Metallica's sense of melody in their song No Remorse. Some have suggested that Prince was trying to emulate this song all along, and considering how popular the style was in the late 1980s, I wouldn't be surprised. It all works well, regardless of whether or not he borrowed material. Perhaps Prince's most original rendition in the game is the song that plays when you clear each episode, a solemn guitar piece that bridges into a melody that symbolizes the never-ending struggle between Doomguy and the demons.
Doom's soundtrack may have borrowed from many areas, but it balances its three key features quite well. Metal, ambience, and melodic understanding. It's not just a game about killing demons, it's an engrossing trip into hell. Whether or not it still feels that way for those who didn't grow up with this game, I'm not sure, but for a game in 1993, Doom's immersion was unparalleled and it paved the way for many, many, many games. <laughs> in the years that followed, the music of Doom went all over the place. You could look down many different avenues to get what you wanted. For metal, you could play Brutal Doom. Andrew Holschult created faithful renditions of the original score for this total conversion mod, bringing more of the game's metal DNA to the forefront. For horror, you could play Doom 64. Aubrey Hodges composed a frightening and overwhelming soundscape for this game that matched the dark lighting and claustrophobic level design. Those drones, man. For a Nintendo 64 game, this is a pretty terrifying experience. It's unreal how much raw fear Aubrey was able to channel in this soundtrack. A very underrated shooter from that time period. It's something I might make a full video on for fun someday. If you wanted a mixture of the two moods, you could play Doom 3. And although Doom 3 came close to maintaining the balance that the original two games struck in their soundtracks, Doom 3 primarily focused on disturbing the player in its music. Chris Vrenna is a phenomenal composer, and his work on Doom 3 is commendable, of course, but when it came to discussing the music of Doom, it became evident that people were gravitating towards Doom 1 and 2 almost every time. They balanced every aspect of the series' musical stylings, and remained the sharpest in the series for that reason. As the years went by, technology got better. More memory could be allocated for audio in games, and that led to building video game music from stems. I've discussed countless examples of this on the channel, but my favorites come from Max Payne 3. And not just because Health is my favorite band. <laughs> nah. Max Payne 3 is linear by design, so the stems in this game progress in the same fashion. But restraint is exactly what can breed creativity. And we'll talk more about that soon. Anyway, you start with this eerie violin as Max says goodbye to his family at their grave, but they throw a sinister heartbeat into the mix as Trouble seems to follow him everywhere. It builds and swaps out instruments throughout until the climax uses a sample of Max's daughter crying amidst the gunfire and somber instrumentation. That's an example from a relatively simple game, but stems can get complex if need be. Red Dead Redemption has so many stems that it's virtually impossible to cover the scope of the game's music in a soundtrack album. It's as if the game's music is performed by a live orchestra that plays their instruments in sync with their every action. Stems have become vital in game design, and they've popped up at basically every AAA Western game for about a decade. Stems weren't possible when Doom came out all those years ago, and they presented a new opportunity for the next game in the series. Whatever that was going to be. <laughs> After suffering a bit of an identity crisis throughout its development, and tumultuous conditions plaguing its team, Doom 4 was eventually rebooted as simply Doom. Revisiting the initial conventions of the series meant that the game could breathe life into the FPS genre when it so desperately needed it. And although the gameplay was certainly shaping up to be an impressive revisitation of FPS elements lost to the sands of time, the music needed to perfectly accompany this. And that brings us to Mick Gordon's dilemma when reading the brief he received at the beginning of the project. The weight of creating something so iconic would dawn on anyone in that moment. Doom's been on hiatus for years, and suddenly they create something that would eventually win over millions of people, both old school Doom fans and FPS fans of an entirely new generation. It was a blend of the old and the new in the best possible way. The music of the game had to accomplish similar feats, 
It needed to respect the original's diversity and adherence to metal and horror, while also feeling fresh and not like he was performing covers of those old songs. Oh, and they didn't want guitars in the game. The very thing that people associated with the Sound of Doom was a big no-no for them. Although Mick had a good amount of experience in composing video game music up to that point, nothing could have prepared him for the task in front of him. Only recently did he have his big break with Killer Instinct and Wolfenstein The New Order, and now he was expected to rejuvenate Doom. Obviously, his career had come a long way since the Nicktoons Attack of the Toybots days back in Melbourne, but this would be a big job for anyone, even if they had decades of experience. Luckily, there was a silver lining in that brief. Although they hated guitars, they were very welcoming of synths. This became Mick's starting point, and it set him up for both the toughest challenge and greatest accomplishment of his career up to that point. Most of the information I'm about to relay comes from a talk Mick gave at GDC 2017, which filled us in on the technical bits and the creative process that went into creating the new sound that we now recognize as Doom. His first idea seemed brilliant at the time. Synths. Hell. Hell is down below. Subs are low, and just like that, he has composed the soundtrack for Doom. Yup. Easy peasy. If you don't know what a sub is, I'll play an example of it right here. So he made a sub melody, combined it with white noise that matched the frequency of the sub, and put it through some distortion. You can actually hear some of these sub parts in the final game if you listen closely. See, they sound pretty cool, but it's not an all-encompassing answer to what Doom should sound like. After all, this is a simple technique. There are two waveforms on his timeline, and the distortion is doing the rest of the work. Now, we obviously wouldn't have left the game's sound at that technique alone, but the core of the soundtrack needed more. As Mick himself has said before, It's inspired by the brief, sure, but it's not an execution of the brief. Both parties recognized that it wasn't enough, although Chris Height, the game's audio director, knew he was on the right track and included these lines in his email to Mick. I feel you've taken the first step on a journey toward the perfect destination. Keep going. You're almost there. Mick recognized that not only would this be a huge opportunity for growth, but that he was also encouraged to think outside of the box and learn from what would go right and wrong from there. This was going to be a milestone project for him, and from there, he came up with something a little crazier for channeling Hell. A primary source of inspiration he cited was the technique used in the David Bowie song Heroes. Producer Tony Visconti created a system that dynamically scaled reverb in accordance with the volume of Bowie's singing. He had Bowie in a concert hall with one mic in front of him. There were two other mics placed further and further away from him that would come on and off depending on how loud Bowie's vocals were. Now you focus on the dramatic impact of Bowie's vocals in that song, but that reverb gave it the extra punch it needed. And here is what Mick drew from that. So I thought, well, what if I designed a system that dynamically produced interesting and appropriate musical bits based on the input? And with that, he was off. He created an insane daisy chain of pedals, phasers, distortion boxes, feedback loops, and more. They were cranked to insane levels and then mixed back down by a compressor. Essentially, that same sub-melody I played for you earlier, generated from sine waves and white noise, was being fed through this daisy chain, and as it was played back, Mick would adjust a few dials as it went on. This right here became his instrument, and he was able to change the sound it was generating in real time for a dynamic listening experience. So once again, here's the melody he created at the beginning, and here's what it became in the end. 
had assembled an instrument that could carry an atmosphere of unsettling dread, but it sounded badass all the same. And that's not all it could do. For combat-heavy scenarios, he could create a fast melody and adjust the dials to create something energetic and vigorous. That last song I just played for you has so many combat stems within, and it never seems to get stale. It contains melodies so diverse and lively, and they're being fed through an instrument that can turn them into something sinister and aggressive. Something that pushes the player to jump around the arena and kill the spider mastermind as quickly as possible. This also happened to be a perfect system for a game utilizing stems, as they could fade in and out seamlessly. Mixing for stems cannot be an easy process, as Doom's stems are selected depending on player performance, almost at random. Everyone has a different playstyle. Some people may be in fierce, upfront combat the whole time, while others might be pacing themselves. And yet, with a sound as consistent yet fluctuational as this, stems can sound smooth in and out of intense situations. Now the music could easily reflect the player's actions in every moment, match the atmosphere perfectly no matter the level, and sound unique for Doom. And I'd argue it's so unique that I can't say I'd really heard it before, outside of like Nine Inch Nails or Aphex Twin or something. Naturally, his new technique was met with a glowing response, but there was still something missing. We had no guitars! Yeah, Doom has been associated with guitars since the beginning for a reason. There's nothing quite like the sound of an electric guitar when you put it over fast and frenetic demon-killing gameplay. But over 20 years later at that point, it was becoming a tired cliché to have that kind of sound in every action game. Most great action game soundtracks from the past decade don't solely rely on the sound of an electric guitar to carry the gameplay. Case in point, Max Payne 3's sound started with an electric guitar, but it was fed through a pedal that made it sound like a discordant, unusual synthy sort of thing. And it's awesome, it's one of my favorite things about health. The core of the Doom soundtrack has been built around this Doom instrument, as we'll call it. Everything that is being generated by this array of parts can't be identified as any specific instrument. Rather, they can resemble those instruments, and that's where to begin the discussion of where and when to implement guitars. I've already played a few bits for you that could be interpreted as those harsh, low guitar tones you might have heard in a metal song, and sneaking some guitar over top of those bits ended up making them hit much harder than they initially would. Example, Harbinger mixes that Doom sound with the guitar to create drones, build-ups, breakdowns, and a main riff that pays respects to Doom 3. Transistor Fist also mixes the two sounds, but it goes harder and faster for a phenomenal payoff. And I gotta give credit to Mick for the E1M4 reference. I'll never forget hearing it for the first time in-game. Most of these low tones were achieved with a 9-string guitar. These things are ridiculous, but the pitch and overall deep, guttural sound you can get out of this thing perfectly accompanies Doom, and more importantly, blends effortlessly with the other parts of mixed compositions. A 9-string was eventually used to recreate the iconic E1M1 riff we all know and love, and it served to foreshadow the soundtrack and game we would all fall in love with after that wonderful tutorial segment. A tutorial segment that is essentially a fuck you to tutorial segments. 
fun doesn't end there for the guitars. The song Flesh and Metal, which is one of my personal favorites for how it balances both of the soundtrack's core elements, does something pretty rad with one of its primary riffs. Mick recorded the riff at a much faster speed, and it sounded quite silly at first. Now, I know it sounds like Bill and Ted at the moment, don't worry. But then, he jacked up the volume on a tape deck and played it back at a slower speed, resulting in this killer new sound. Most of the song also cleverly makes use of the lead guitar so that it blends with the jumpiness and unpredictability of Mix Array. Example? My favorite stem in the song. I feel like this song was a major proponent in lovingly classifying the soundtrack's genre as industrial glitch metal. And that's what I'm saying, I can't really say I've heard anything like it before. But easily my favorite usage of the guitar in this game comes from the main menu theme Hellwalker. Mick started with a low 9-string riff and interpolated it with the sound of a chainsaw. I am not kidding, a chainsaw! And it sounds incredible. For a song that already encompasses themes of dread and anticipation, it's perfect. Mick was very clever about his implementation of guitars up to this point, but now that things were going his way and he nailed the sound for this project, it was time to go all out with his guitars. It was time to write the two songs that most people point to when discussing the music of Doom 2016. BFG Division, and Rip and Tear. BFG Division doesn't have many stems, but those few stems assemble a pretty cohesive and enjoyable track. A few demons notice you and we have this intriguing, subtle buildup that I've likened to blood dripping on the floor in the past, and I still think it rings true. Then, when you hear the first guitar riffs in the medium stems, they're like revving chainsaws. It builds this atmosphere of anticipation for the carnage that's about to ensue, until finally, it explodes. That's a polyvox you're hearing over the main riff. It's a Russian synthesizer that can create these distinct, grungy, and industrial melodies. I guess you could consider it the soundtrack's third main instrument, as it perfectly complements the violent sounds of both Mick's array and the nine-string guitar. Much like the Bobby Prince era, Mick has created a well-rounded soundtrack that features metal, ambience, and melodic understanding, and it's all tied together by his ability to think outside of the box and create something utterly violent in every moment and every mood. Although, 
Sometimes sheer, unadulterated violence is exactly what Doom needs in its soundtrack. And luckily, Rip and Tear delivers. Up until the point where this song plays in-game, Mick was clever about how he snuck guitars into the soundtrack, mixing them with other sounds, playing low, nine-string riffs with a polyvox over top, and even using a goddamn chainsaw. But having at least one song that unleashes pure anger and carnage is something that seems necessary for a game like Doom. And because it was saved for the game's third act, as you're pitted against the toughest demons in the game, it felt amazing to hear. Rip and Tear has a ton of stems, and they all pay off tremendously well in the heat of the moment. They all have different riffs that are designed to match whatever's going on in the arena, with barely any structure for some of the hardest riffs, but that doesn't matter. It just goes off, and it totally synchronizes with whatever you're doing and whoever you're killing. This harsh, murderous guitar is screaming in your ears, and it's allowing you to unload every single bullet you have into these demons. Most of the song is comprised of guitars, ambience and drones included. It's clawing at you and forcing you straight into the arena. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is exactly how the game's soundtrack pushes the player to excel in combat. The build-up to this song throughout the game mirrors the game's steady increase in challenge as the player develops their skills over the course of the campaign. Even though the player is facing some of the toughest demons yet back-to-back, -back, they've been prepared for them. The music is as claustrophobic and abrasive as the gameplay, and Mick Gordon flipped the proverbial switch that caused players to move around the arena more and get as aggressive as they possibly could. His ability to do this, as well as his unique and identifiable sound that perfectly fit Doom and all of its encompassing moods, earned him every award he'd received that year for his work. And the world immediately wanted more. Thankfully, id realized that they had captured lightning in a bottle, and they didn't want that to go to waste. During the talk Mick held at GDC 2017, he mentioned wanting to do something like Doom again. Little did we know, he was in California for another reason. Id had invited him down to discuss working on a sequel. At this point, they were aware of the impact that guitars had on the soundtrack, and they fully embraced the idea of the game going harder and faster than ever before. They wanted this to be an unabashedly violent soundtrack. In an effort to capture that, Mick created a track that was 264 beats per minute, and this is the insanity that ensued. Now, in case you don't see the problem with a track this fast, it's that it would annoy the hell out of the player when they were in heated, claustrophobic battles. There's too much going on in their ears. So, they scaled things back just a little bit. There are still some blazingly fast tracks in Doom Eternal, but the stems are far more consistent and easier to digest. They have flow, more structure. As a result of having more structure, songs that aim to be bigger and more violent than anything in the last game actually end up working brilliantly. For example, the song BFG 10,000 has consistent thrash riffs that still give the player space to breathe and enjoy what they're doing. And it actually has a sense of melody, 
For metal, I love when musicians prioritize melody in their work, no matter how insane the music is. Here, it sounds friggin' awesome! I also really appreciate that fast combat stems are used sparingly so that they have significant buildup. The song Metal Hell brings a slower 9-string riff to the forefront first, and it's one that I love. Its deep sound and catchy rhythm make for a perfect balance between killing, thinking, and moving. But when things get crazy, there's a fast, pulse-pounding riff to go with it. Stuff like this works best as the player's anticipation builds, and Mick knew that. The first song you hear when you boot the game up is simply titled Doom Eternal. It is a powerful piece that starts with four simple notes. Nothing but a whistle, as compressed guitars, industrial clangs, and all sorts of crazy, hellish instrumentation increase in volume and frequency. We can hear the depths of hell being unleashed until we finally get a guitar riff to kick in. Then, the whistle comes back, with teeth. So there I am, playing this game at midnight on March 20th, completely taken aback by how amazing the first song is in the game. It grabbed me by the throat and enthralled me. I was already dying to play this game, but this sent things into overdrive. I couldn't wait to see what was next. Doom Eternal's soundtrack zeroes in on that metal vibe, with guitars and powerful percussion both on full display. The first level demonstrates this wholesale. Guitar drones and ambience that literally screams as it reflects the state the world is in, and compositions that sound like hell rising to the surface. And then, once you get into combat, you get this powerful onslaught of metal goodness that just butters my bread. This is Doom Eternal's strongest suit. Nothing is holding Mick back from putting in as much guitar as he wants, but he's smart about his implementation of the instrument. The song Meat Hook features all kinds of varied riffs that enable you to rain hell on the demons, as the synths build pressure and maintain the level's atmosphere. It's shrouded in this demonic, over-the-top feeling. I absolutely adore everything about this song. The song Super Gore Nest essentially translates the extreme violence and adrenaline present in this level into audio. These riffs are extraordinary demon-killing fuel.
And of course, the game's most famous song needs no introduction. There are so many incredible stems in this song. Any encounter is immediately heightened by these microtonal and heavy riffs. we can't forget about Mick's ability to blend other sounds with instruments. While you can hear a ton of interpolation in this soundtrack if you're used to Doom's music, some of this stuff is so absurd that you wouldn't think it actually works. And yet it does. First, listen to this bit from the cultist-based theme. Sounds like a pretty gnarly guitar riff, right? Well. That's actually a compressed chainsaw. There's no underlying guitar here. The chainsaw is the lead instrument now. And it sounds fucking amazing! But weirder still is a technique he used in The Only Thing They Fear Is You. While working on this track, Mick heard a lawnmower outside. A lawnmower! He then thought to himself, oh yes, a musical instrument. He rose the pitch, created a melody out of it, and put it over this bit. Who needs synths? Dude, I am jamming out to fucking power tools. What, <laughs> what is life? Now, with all this hardcore metal stuff, you'd think that Mick's old array of pedals would have fallen to the wayside, right? Well, no. They're back. The ambient and medium stems from the cultist bass level use this array to generate some intense stuff when faced with those that dare to defy you. My favorite usage of the array in this game comes from the Slayer's arrival on Phobos. This scene will forever make me smile and you can feel the badassery emanating from him as you watch it unfold. These stems feature mixed metal choir that he assembled back in 2019. It's a pretty novel idea gathering a ton of metal vocalists to create a reverberant and hair-raising choir. They add so much to the atmosphere of these ancient temples and stuff, but the cool thing is that the choir has been snuck into so many areas across the soundtrack. It's always there in some form, and it can feel like it is both chanting for you and screaming in fear of you. Here are a couple of my favorite examples of the choir. The Doom Hunters theme is a mixture of metal and electronic music with some corrupted and distorted metal vocals to symbolize the nature of the enemy and the con maker in general. My other favorite instance of the choir is far more poignant, however. The singer's name here is Eric Holloway, and his voice is so goddamn low. It single-handedly carries the atmosphere of this temple. That's something that Mick really nailed this time. You're not just traveling between Hell and Mars anymore. You're going all over the place and visiting a ton of different worlds. 
They each have defining characteristics and music, further enhancing that already enriched detail. But Erdak seems to take the crown for me. The con maker needed to harvest energy from Earth after, you know, you destroyed it all in the first game and Olivia Pierce let the demons in. It was all essentially an invitation to be slaughtered by the millions. So she's collecting all these souls to power this corrupt paradise, and when you finally get there, it may be beautiful, but it's completely deserted. Just soulless. Dead. And the music reflects this. It's so disturbing. This whole time, she's been powering a world that was dead to begin with. Now the story presentation throughout is kind of a mixed bag, jumping from the satirical tone that I love to a more serious take on the con maker narrative that feels out of place in a game like this, but there is a ton of passion put into this stuff and you can tell a lot of the time. Although, when it comes to atmosphere, I always come back to a single track in this game. Exaltia, as a level, has so much visual storytelling. It was the first moment in the game where I felt genuinely intrigued by what happened before the Slayer's time. And there's a puppy you get to follow, it's the best. This level in particular is super evocative of its Quake era, and Quake is perhaps my favorite game to come from them to this very day, so I'm a little attached to this one. The music, however, is a whole other story. You have your nasty, rustic drones, your foreboding ambience, and a few welcome chants from the metal choir, but you also have a single guitar riff that any Doom fan should recognize and gel with. Now throughout the game, there are a few references to past Doom games. One of the stems that can show up when the only thing they fear is you fades out is a faster, modern take on a Doom 2 classic. But nothing prepared me for the riff I was about to hear in Exaltia. It was my favorite song from the original Doom, the most contemplative of the bunch, and it felt right at home here. I'm gonna be honest, Mick's score for these levels compelled me more than the upfront storytelling did. He is an essential part of these games. Overall, the soundtrack is larger than life. Everything Mick does gives it this big, bombastic edge, and it gorgeously accompanies the grand journey you take throughout the game from world to world. But most importantly, it enables the player to perform better in intense situations. In case you weren't already acutely aware, Doom Eternal is a hard game. Demons will utterly mutilate you if you let them, and that's why rising above them feels so good. Humiliating a marauder as he lunges at you, or putting a titan in its place while managing like a thousand different demons at once? is emphatically satisfying. And just like Doom 2016, you become gradually equipped for situations like this, both through game design and through music. This ties us back to what I discussed at the beginning of this video. What is it about music that allows us to tap into this unrealized potential? When I'm working, I usually throw on some music and I'm able to focus intently. When I go for a bike ride, I listen to some stuff that keeps me in a good mood and I'm able to focus on maintaining my stamina. When I'm trying to sleep, I'll listen to some quiet, ambient pieces with orchestration that intrigues me. Suddenly, I'm able to transport myself into that world and I'm out like a light. Now there are studies on how music can affect the brain in these ways and it's quite incredible stuff, but there's one mystery that has eluded me until now. How can music influence rapid fire decision making and reflexes in a fast paced first person shooter? That just never made sense to me. I mean it feels like it's something that we all innately understand, but 
what's the science behind it? Music may be able to help you concentrate, but that's for stuff like reading or studying. How can it help you when your brain is already racing a thousand miles a minute? Well, after thinking about it for a while, I came up with a pretty concrete theory. I feel as if my brain is subconsciously making an effort to live up to the music that's playing. It's chasing that next hit of dopamine, and in an effort to do so, I'm sharpening my decision making and making my next moves count. Now there's only so much you can do with the skill you've already accumulated, but it's that push that made me feel like an unstoppable killing machine. And because of that, the music seemed to accompany my gameplay. How well I was doing. Dopamine is quite powerful, and Doom Eternal takes advantage of that in the best possible way. Both of these games do. I replay these games not just because of their level design and mechanics, but also because they provide me with an endless feedback loop. They give me this unparalleled hit of dopamine that I can't get anywhere else. Especially in Doom Eternal's case. With a game this challenging, and the amount of things you need to manage at once, it can feel like you're king of the world when you push yourself to the limit and get shit done. And without Mick Gordon, I don't think it would feel quite as impactful. The wide range of brutal stems encourage you to the greatest extent to make the demons cower before you. His techniques are diverse, unique, and wonderful. He has been a defining characteristic for Doom, and losing him means things just simply won't be the same. If you've paid attention to the Doom community in any capacity lately, you've probably heard about what went down. Doom Eternal's official soundtrack album released a month late for collector's edition owners, and to the surprise of many, mixing for certain songs was not up to snuff. They were muddy and didn't carry any of the dynamic highs and lows of Doom 2016's soundtrack album. Mick chimed in on Twitter, stating that he didn't mix those tracks and wouldn't have done that, and that we'd be able to point out the handful that he mixed. This is true, as certain songs on the album sound just fine. But this single tweet led to a massive outcry amongst fans assuming that Bethesda or Zenimax were the ones that screwed him over. Now, I wouldn't put it past a company like Bethesda to do something like that, but this simply wasn't true. Director Marty Stratton took to Reddit to explain what really happened behind the scenes. Allegedly, there was far more work than anticipated in assembling a comprehensive album. See, I've already discussed the abundance of combat stems in Doom Eternal, and trying to stitch all of them together into something that can be listened to outside of the game in a digestible fashion isn't very easy. The music was written to be played within the game. It was designed to be assembled in real time depending on the player's actions. Mick was being asked to do all of this for a whopping 59 tracks. He asked for extensions to his deadline, and he was accommodated several times until the deadline finally arrived. He was only able to deliver 12 tracks, and the rest were mixed in-house at id by Chad Mossholder. The remaining mixes sound muddy because they were composed of whatever material Chad had to work with, such as pre-compressed stems designed only to be heard in-game. Fans noticed the discrepancy, and without concrete information, started throwing accusations all over the place. Mick alluded to this behavior back in 2017 in a humorous fashion. If Doom fans don't like what you've done, they'll burn your house down. But of course, I don't blame these people, they're confused as to why this happened. They want answers. And now, we have answers, and unfortunately, an abrupt form of closure. Mick and the team have been able to discuss the difficulties he faced in assembling this thing, but it's looking like he won't be working with id Software ever again. It's a really depressing situation, and it's yet another shitty thing that happened this year that is completely out of our control. It's not as uncommon as you'd think for an artist to miss deadlines and be dissatisfied with the work they'd submitted, but at the end of the day, artists have to operate in a business environment. They need to be able to meet deadlines and criteria set by their employers, and that can be really damn frustrating. 
it is moving forward with the game's DLC without Mick in charge of music, and I imagine it'll still sound pretty good, but nothing like what Mick was able to create. He was able to tap into the core of Doom through unorthodox and intriguing techniques, and he was creative in how he implemented those characteristics. He created two brilliant soundtracks that challenged the fundamentals of creating a video game soundtrack. With that said, Doom was also a huge learning experience for him, and I have no doubt that whatever he composes for next will be something to look forward to. And his impact on the sound of Doom will live on for decades, just like Bobby Princess has. And with that, I've been Liam Triforce, and I'd like to thank you for watching.